Good morning. Uh, as you're probably aware of, we've been dealing with some crowding issues here at the church, so Eric asked if I'd step in and preach to try and thin the herd a little bit. Uh, <laughs> just try to open up a few seats so you don't feel so crowded. Um, yeah, it's working so far. I was hoping that was a joke. I'm scared it might not be. Um, as Eric said, I'm Pastor Mark. I get to work with the uh, youth here at the church. That's my primary job. Uh, every now and then they let me come up here and do this, and I'm excited to get to open the word with you guys this morning. So will you pray with me as, uh, as we get ready to get started? <sighs> Heavenly Father, I thank you just for this day that you have given us. It is your day, and you intend to do things with it that, that we don't even know. Um, you have designed this day and this week that lies ahead for your glory and for your good. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us in uh, to your plans that you let us be your agents in that, that you let us help. Heavenly Father, I pray for just open hearts as we look at your word this morning, that it would speak uh, to myself, that it would speak to to everyone here, that we would hear what your Holy Spirit is guiding and teaching us today. Thank you for your word that stands true, that we don't have to question, uh, Lord, that it guides us in each and every situation that we find ourselves in. So Heavenly Father, uh, I just pray that you would... um, just use the words that, that you've put on my heart today, that they would be your truth, uh, and that they would speak into the lives uh, of people here today, God. We ask your help with this. Amen. Amen. Ever have one of those days where you just don't want to live here anymore? <laughs> Ironically, a week of 40 below, uh, Thursday there was like eight minutes of sunlight. Like You may be thinking that I mean... Alaska, but when I ask that question, do you even want to live here anymore, I ask it in a, in a bigger picture. What I really mean is, do you even really want to live on this planet anymore? As we finish up the year 2013 and go into 2014, do you ever just sort of find yourself just looking around at, at what's going on and say, really? This is the, the great achievement of, of mankind? I mean, don't I appreciate all the advances we've made? I love high-definition television and sports. I love DVRs. I love the internet. I'm excited about some of the things that are going on. But do you ever just listen to the evening news, or maybe you're old school and you pick up a a newspaper and just read it and say, really? Is this what the world is? The reason I ask, a couple weeks ago, uh, I was in the the kitchen and my wife uh, and I were sort of having a conversation and it was essentially the, is this what the world has really come to conversation? And the sad thing as I was preparing to talk about that this morning is I couldn't even remember what the conversation was about because we've had that conversation and it seems like that conversation's happening more frequently and not less frequently. There, there's different things as we look around that, that may just cause us to, to sort of shake our head, cause us to, f- to be concerned. Your list probably looks a little bit different than my list. Uh, a couple things that came to my mind when I sort of look at this world and think, really, is I'm tired of turning on the news and, and hearing another story about somebody going on a public shooting or another school full of kids that's on lockdown. I'm tired of that. I'm tired that that's what this world has become. I'm tired of listening about politics where it seems like 90% of what they do is try to blame the other people for what they've done, and then they spend about 10% of the time actually trying to solve the problems that they've created in the first place. I'm tired that that's the world that we live in. I'm tired that that's the culture that we're surrounded in. 
I'm tired of, of living in a world where when we, we got to go on vacation a couple weeks ago and when we went to go board the airplane, my four-year-old daughter has to go through a metal detector so that I don't have to worry that our airplane's going to blow up. Is that really the world that we find ourselves? Do you ever get the feeling that you just don't fit in any here anymore and you really don't even want to? You know, when, when you're around somebody and you're, maybe you're walking with somebody and they do something embarrassing and you just kind of take a step away from them to indicate that you're not really with them? Have you ever wanted to just do that to humanity in general? As something's going on over here, you just want to be like, nope, <laughs> no, I, I don't want anything to do with that. These thoughts were, were sort of rolling around uh, in my mind and, and had just been sort of on my heart uh, last week as I was beginning to sort of look for some different passages that I would be interested in preaching. And so sort of with those thoughts in mind, with those sort of frustrations on my heart, uh, I came across the passage here that, that I wanted to share with you guys today. It's in First Peter chapter 2. And, and as I read it, I, I felt like it, it both captured the frustration that I was feeling, but it also offered a solution. First Peter chapter two verse eleven or tw- eleven and twelve, and you can follow along. It's also in your uh, bulletin as well. Here's what Peter says, picking up in verse eleven. He says, "Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul." Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. A little bit of background, uh, since we're just jumping right into the middle of a passage, I want to make sure we understand what's going on. First Peter is a letter written by the Apostle Peter. You probably are familiar with Peter. He is foot in his mouth. I'll never deny you except for the three times that I deny you. Act first, talk second, think third, Peter. Um, I love Peter. If God can use Peter, God can use us. Amen? Peter is now one of the, the leaders in the early church, and he's writing a letter, and we find that it's addressed at the, the start of the, of the book. First Peter 1 Peter 1.1 says it's addressed to God's elect and the exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So we get an, an idea of who this is addressed to. He, he's writing to Christians while it is a very difficult time to be a Christian. Uh, Nero was the emperor of Rome at this time and was persecuting Christians throughout the entire empire. Uh, likely the people that Peter is writing, they weren't just scattered because they liked to live somewhere else. They were probably scattered uh, because of persecution and, and for safety reasons. They, they sort of dis- dispersed. Uh, they weren't on mission trip to these different areas. They were just trying to survive uh, as they were scattered. Uh, being a Christian in, in this location at this time in history was probably one of the last things that you wanted to be doing. And so it, it's in this context that we find uh, Peter writing to them to encourage them how to live and instruct them as far as what to do during the difficult times that they're finding themselves in. So Peter starts off in verse 11, he addresses them, says, Dear friends, uh, I like actually the ESV or, or the NASB translation a little bit better. It says, beloved, um, a term of endearment. Uh, 
This is not a letter from a random stranger to them. Maybe you, uh, as you interact with people, maybe you have a nickname for a loved one or a name that only you call them that, that kind of, they could hear it in a crowd and know that that's you calling them. Um, my, I have my youngest daughter, Peyton, or oldest daughter, Peyton. She's four years old. She likes, she thinks it's funny to call me Mark. Uh, and so I, I, I remind her that she gets to call me daddy and there's only two people in this world that get to call me daddy and, and that's a special name. That, that name means something uh, and, and she should enjoy that. And so we see this word beloved, it, it, it's a term that, that means something that has an association with it. It's, it's not just uh, a name. If someone were to call you, come to this, this morning and call you beloved, it would mean something. I'm guessing that your dentist and the checker at Fred Myers don't call you beloved as you meet them. If they do, that's really strange. It's, it's meant as they read this portion to sort of disarm them, to, to remind them that this is, is an encouragement from a friend. This isn't just random self-help advice. This isn't the comment section on a, on a website. This is a personal communication from somebody who loves them and cares for them. Peter's concerned for the situation that he finds his friends in, and he wants to offer some help. The reader should, should hear this and know that, that what's about to follow is grounded in love. And so the first thing that I want to tell you guys this morning is, is you're loved. Um, this is a letter from, from someone we're going to look at this morning that loves us and thinks that we're special. This is a letter from, uh, from God that, that, that we're going to be instructed from. And we're supposed to hear this and know that this is personal, that this is, is written out of love. Several years ago, my, my wife uh, was deployed. We were separated for, uh, for several months. And I remember the feeling when I would get a letter from her. Uh, and and it, it could have just said, Dear Mark, love Diana. And, and I would have been happy. Because to get a letter from someone who loved you, that, that, that meant so much. And before I go any further, I should explain. Um, if you're under 20, a letter, it's, um, you would write on paper and you would put it in an envelope. And then you would, it's called a stamp. Um, Never, 20th century texting, that's all it is. Um, I saw a statistic the other day. I think um, like 50% of people under the age of 18 have never sent a letter. Just, that was just interesting. Um, go home and send a letter today. Uh, what, I, what I picture is this group of stressed out Christians that, that receive this letter from Peter. And maybe as they're reading through the first chapter, they're just so nervous. And they get to this part and... and and as they read it, it almost sounds differently. They're reading, reading, reading. Beloved. Ah, this is from Peter. This is someone who loves us. And so my hope is that, that as you encounter this, as you see that, that word beloved, that you would, would see the love letter from God that's written across the pages of Scripture and you would stop and see, beloved, we're loved. The God who inspired this letter loves us and wants to instruct us in difficult times. Peter acknowledges the situation that they're in. Uh, he acknowledges what's going on. He calls them foreigners and exiles. Um, there's great imagery in the way that these words are translated. The NASB says that they are aliens and strangers. The King James Version calls them sojourners uh, and pilgrims. This idea uh, of people that are out of place and, and disconnected. And there's sort of two different ways that, that we can look at these terms and, and what they're meaning. The first idea is that we could look at it as sort of a legal foreigner. Uh, I think of maybe a soldier that's stationed abroad or maybe a student that's studying 
internationally, somewhere that you are where you're not a citizen, you're, you're not covered by the country that you're living in. doesn't matter how you look or, or how well you fit in legally, you aren't one of them. Uh, it may not seem like a big deal to us because if we were to be somewhere else, we would still most likely sort of fall under the blanket of the protection of the American government. So for us to be a foreigner doesn't, doesn't really seem like, like that big of a deal. But back then, to be not a Roman citizen was a significant problem. Without citizenship, you lacked the same legal rights and protections. It meant that you were exposed and vulnerable, that you were left to sort of fend for yourself. And so Peter acknowledges that that, that's a situation that these people find themselves in. The other way to sort of look at it is, is to look at them as sort of social foreigners, the feeling of being sort of far from home, out of place, exiles, strangers. Things aren't what you're sort of used to them being. Uh, what comes to mind as I sort of think of that idea is uh, when I got to travel to Ethiopia uh, two years ago. I was still on earth, Google Maps assured me of that, but nothing worked how I was used to it worth working. Nothing existed the way that I was used to things existed. They used different words. They used different handshakes. Uh, there was a different kind of hug when you met somebody. Lots of guy hugging. That's not normal for me. And they did a cheek-to-cheek thing that even crossed new boundaries. <laughs> they fed me food that I'm sure was food, but my stomach wasn't entirely sure that it was. They had electricity, but even my plug-ins didn't agree with their plug-ins, and we found ourselves in, in a dilemma with that. Uh, everything I did, uh, except for playing soccer, soccer was the one equalizer. I felt normal when I played soccer with them. Everything else that I did, I felt completely out of place. And, and I think that's, that's the idea where Paul is writing to a group of people that felt completely out of place. They were surrounded with unfamiliar ideas, uh, different ways of life, different ways of looking at things. Because of the context uh, that we're given uh, in the introduction of 1 Peter uh, 1, it seems most likely that Paul is giving it to them uh, in the first sense, that they were likely unprotected foreigners that could have easily fallen victim to a, to a corrupt government and to persecution uh, quite easily. But it does certainly square with the teaching, uh, biblically, the, to take it in a metaphorical sense, that we as Christians are strangers in this world, surrounded by people that have different values and different lifestyles. As Christians, sometimes we find ourselves feeling awkward, out of place, and alone in, the, in this world. We find ourselves feeling like we're swimming against the current. Because the reality is, is, as a Christian, you are an outsider. Ephesians 2.19 says, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household. Philippians 3.20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. We do belong, just not anywhere here. Not where we find ourselves today. We were just reminded as we went through the Christmas story that the angels came to the shepherds. They were outsiders, and they were the first to hear Jesus was called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. People considered traitors to their, their own nation. These people were considered outsiders to people that were outsiders. That, that, that was tax collectors. And so we're just reminded about the outsider nature of being a follower of Christ, of being a citizen of heaven, is to look at this world and say, it's not our home. 
So maybe one of the questions I have for us this morning is, as Christians, when did blending in become the goal? We're reminded in Romans 12, 2, says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This world where we live is not our home. Paul refers to himself here on earth as a tent, as a temporary residence. The things that are accepted and popular and common in our society don't reflect the values and the things that we consider important as Christians. It's the feeling you get when you watch the news and read the paper and don't feel like the issues represent you. It's when you have a conversation in your kitchen with your spouse or a cup of coffee with a friend and and you feel that the world is at one end of the spectrum and you're at the other. If you're having those conversations and you find yourself agreeing with the majority, it may be time to start worrying a little bit because we are outsiders. God's way is always going to be contrary to culture because culture is created by, and sustained by sinful humanity. It's not our goal as Christians to live this massive countercultural life that that's the point, that God just wants a bunch of hipsters that want to deal with the opposite of the culture. Instead, countercultural living is going to happen naturally as a result of people who are living lives modeled after Jesus Christ. We're going to become outsiders as we live a life that models Christ. And because of this reality that we are outsiders, Peter instructs us that we're to do things differently. Continuing in in verse 11, he says, We are to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Uh, Sometimes... um, Speaking personally, I'd rather just sort of throw a pity party when something's going wrong than actually do something about it. But Peter acknowledges that their situation is difficult, but he gives the the readers a course of action. Because of this problem, let's do this solution. Because they are foreigners and exiles, he tells them to abstain from sin. Peter is calling them to live holy lives. And holiness, it's a blanket statement, um, it covers all aspects of our lives. Abstain from sinful desires. The call for the Christian is, is to be holy, to be set apart, to be separated from sin. He doesn't just say, hey, you know, do your best to keep a handle on your sin, try to minimize the damage. No, he says abstain from it. Be holy. Have nothing to do with it. Peter will go on actually in the rest of the letter, in the rest of First Peter, and he'll give specifics as to how that holiness is lived out in specific areas of our lives. He explains that our, our holiness is to extend into our relationship with the government, into our relationship with our employer, into our relationship with our family. This holiness is supposed to then go into every avenue of our lives. And I'd invite you this week in, in your personal study, if you want to pick up here in First Peter 2 and keep going and see how holiness is spelled out in those specific areas. But this morning, I want to just kind of take the big picture of abstaining from sin. Peter doesn't just set the bar where it's attainable. He calls us to set the bar where God has called us to set the bar, where we are commanded to be holy. Holiness is the desire to know God, to know God fully with an unwavering commitment to obey God whatever it costs and whatever the situation. Holiness isn't just lived out in situations where it's easy. God said, don't murder. We don't get to go check mark, yay, I didn't murder this week, I'm nailing this holiness thing. The only thing I killed had antlers this week. You know, that's that's very Alaskan. No, holiness is lived out in all aspects of our life, and particularly the difficult ones. Holiness isn't just upper-level Christianity. It's not something you learn to do once you've been a Christian for a number of years. 
It's the calling for all Christians at all stages, at all ages. It's not just upper level. It's not what we graduate to. Now that I'm good at being a Christian, now I can strive for holiness. And Peter acknowledges this is not uh, an easy task. This isn't just something simply that he's casually throwing out there saying, do this and no problem. He says, we are at war with sin, sinful desires which wage war against your soul. It says here that it's attacking us. It's attacking our soul. I would say it's going after your spirit, your essence. It's trying to break you down. Now, sin is not a new problem. This is not a new struggle. Mankind has never lacked ways and ideas of how to sin. It's the same battle that we've been fighting since Adam is the same battle that you and I are fighting today. But can I give, this is one observation I want to throw in. Uh, as someone who works with teenagers uh, and sort of who observes changes in cultures, this is, this is my opinion about the battle with sin. I think it's getting easier to sin. Let me explain that. I think in, in one sense it's getting easier to sin because sin is becoming more culturally accepted and because everyone's too scared to call a sin a sin. And then the second way that I think sin is getting easier, that the battle is getting more difficult, is that I think technological advancements are amazing, but they've changed the way that we live and they've changed the way that we sin. It used to be that, that for the most part, if you wanted to sin, you went and sinned. You had to go sin. Now, sin comes and visits us right where we are at any moment of the day. Your home, which used to be your safe place, is no longer a secure castle. Because of changes in technology, children are starting the battles with sin at earlier and earlier ages. If you want to have your heart broken, go online and read the latest statistics for the age for children's first exposure to pornography. It'll break your heart. We are at war with sin. And if we aren't at war with sin, sin is at war with us. I heard this, this thought at a, at a conference that I was at a couple months ago, and it's, it's kind of stuck in my mind since then in, in kind of relation to this theme. This generation of students that's growing up now, they are the first generation of students that don't need adults to learn things. It used to be that, that if you wanted to learn something, you went and found an adult that knew something about it or found an adult to help you learn something about it. And that's no longer the case. If there was a 10-year-old that a couple weeks ago, Nelson Mandela's name was all over the news. If there's a 10-year-old that didn't know anything about Nelson Mandela, they did not need an adult to learn everything they ever wanted to know about Nelson Mandela, right? The, the information is out there. The sin is out there. And it is constantly raging a battle against us. The war is constantly changing. The war against sin that maybe we fought 50 years ago, 20 years ago, is different than the war that we're fighting today. And I just would remind you to be constantly thoughtful and vigilant in our own lives and in the lives of our children about the war that's raging. Sin reminds me of, of the raptors from the movie Jurassic Park. You remember the... It says they were in the fence, and it said they went around and they would test, and they would never test at the same spot. They were looking for a weakness, and, and they were always, always roaming, always testing. Satan is described as a devouring lion that's looking for someone to devour. It sounds an awful lot like the raptors in that movie to me. Always testing, always looking. We are at war with sin. We can't avoid it. Peter calls us to, to live holy lives, understanding that it's a difficult challenge, but he lays out two reasons why a life of holiness benefits a Christian. 
verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Because of their status as foreigners, they were particularly vulnerable in a legal sense. Uh, So one particular advantage to abstaining from sin and living a holy life was that it it helped them avoid unnecessary trouble. Peter actually follows up this thought more in the next chapter, in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, Keeping a clear conscience that that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Live in such a way that if an accusation was to come against you, you wouldn't even have to defend yourself. The people around you would be like, come on, we all know Bill. That's ludicrous. Living a holy life is not only the right thing to do, as we're told scripturally, but it's, it's preventative maintenance against future problems. There are storms of this life that are outside of our control. We are fallen creatures in a fallen world. Perfection and peace is not an option. When Jesus told the parable of of the wise men and the foolish men and the storms that came against their house, he didn't say if storms come. He said when storms come. So so following, uh, living holy doesn't mean that we avoid all problems, but it does mean that we avoid unnecessary problems. How many of the storms that come into our life are of our own choosing? Of our own doing. As we live by the ways of the world and allow sin to have these footholds in our lives, we're essentially saying, you know what I need this year? Ah, About an extra 10 or 20 problems. Proverbs is a book that talks about principles of wise living in order to avoid unnecessary trouble. As we consistently make wise and God-honoring holy decisions in our lives, we limit our exposure to risk. You do it with your 401k, why don't you do it with your life? Verse 12 adds, adds one more uh, benefit about a life of holiness. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Holiness isn't entirely about you. We are called to be holy so that others may see God through you. Your holiness is for the benefit of others. Your life is a missions field, and as you walk out of these doors and into the rest of your week, many of you are surrounded by non-Christians. Maybe it's where you work. Maybe it's where you live. Maybe it's where you go with your kids and the different activities that you're involved in. And one of the benefits of being an outsider is when you live differently, people notice. Jesus told us during the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 16, says, "...in the same way, let your light shine before others." that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I think one thing, sometimes as Christians, we can be so worried about being able to explain every aspect of our faith, and and there's something right in that. Peter gives us instructions in the next chapter. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks. But I think it's important to remember to pair that advice with what Peter says here in chapter 2. Are you living your life in such a way that anyone's even going to bother to ask? Peter says, live your life in a way that causes other people to glorify God. Your life is one of the most powerful tools that God has to reach others. Are you letting him use it? Does your life give as strong of defense and evidence for your faith as your words do? Are you using the places where God has placed you as a foreigner, as a stranger, 
for the sake of the kingdom of God. My encouragement would be don't be so worried about blending in, but be on the lookout for the opportunities that God has put in front of you to live out the gospel to the people that he has intentionally placed you around. I'd encourage you, stop seeing different as being a problem and start seeing different as an opportunity where our lives can cause other people to see the glory of God, where we can live out the gospel in front of them and cause them to see the glory of God. Let me close with with this scripture uh, from Matthew 5, verses 14 and 15. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. As people that are loved by God, enough that he would send his son to the cross to die for us, we are called to live holy lives in the midst of cultural chaos so that God can accomplish his purpose and bring glory to himself through it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I, I can certainly understand the frustration of wanting to just throw up our hands and, and check out and be done. God, there are, there are days, there are moments when, when this world just doesn't agree with me and I don't agree with it. My prayer is that we would, would not see that frustration as a reason to disengage Heavenly Father, we would see our status as outsiders as a reason to re-engage, to come into a world uh, that's dark, that does not know you, and to be a city on a hill, to be a light that shouldn't be hidden, but to be a light that shines brightly for all to see. You've put us each in different and unique circumstances and in different roles and places in life, and you have said, be my ambassadors there. Be an outsider so that other people can see that there's a different way to do things, that there's a different purpose, a different reason for life. Heavenly Father, I pray that when we feel different, that we would not be discouraged, but that we would be encouraged because those are opportunities to shine for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for just this opportunity to share this morning. Thank you for what you've done in my life and in the lives of my friends here. I'm excited to see what you will continue to do in this dark world sometimes, God. Amen.